I lived in Chicago for about a second back in 1988. It was the tail end of summer, first part of autumn, mid-August through October. The Cubs ended up 24 games out, and they were the good team in the city. The White Sox finished 32 and a half games back. That September, if I had wanted to, I could have gone to a baseball game almost every day. Tickets were nearly free, and at Comiskey Park, they'd let you in if you just looked like you might have had a ticket. I'd either sneak away from training in the afternoon to see the Cubs or risk my life at night riding the L to the south side to see the Sox. You see, I hated driving in Chicago, being a rube from Rawls County, Missouri. And Chicagoans don't make it easy for us foreigners. See, Chicago has an affinity for nicknames, and it runs really deep. They even nickname their own highways, which makes a traffic report or somebody giving you directions impossible to decipher if you're not from there. It's never I-90 or... 290 or 355 or whatever the... It's an odd collection of bishops and presidents' names fighting each other in traffic snarls. Sounds less like a traffic report and more like an explanation of how the Vietnam War might have started. When the company transferred me, guess where to? Houston, where nothing on four wheels moves faster than a snail between 6 a.m. and 7 p.m. At least there they call the highways by their given names. This is episode three. Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Well, that's true, Jessica. I do get more miles per pint than anybody unless I'm stuck on the Dan Ryan. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bruise Traveler, unless you're discovering us for the first time, and then welcome aboard. Thank you for finding us out here in the podcasting universe. My name is Alan Tapman, and I am going to be your host, and I am the chief cat herder for the Bruise Traveler team. And on this episode, we're heading up to the Windy City. We're heading up to Chicago to Revolution Brewing, Illinois' largest brewery and one of the premier craft breweries in the Midwest. And as I am coming to you almost live from our studios here in Jefferson City, uh, I am sipping on a Revolution Anti-Hero IPA, and they specialize in IPAs. They do a really good job, and this one is particularly delicious. So I was up in Chicago this past month before I flew over to Ireland, and my good friend Brooks Scott, Chicago native and North Sider, he chauffeured me around. We went to the brewery and the tap room, and we were lucky enough to be able to sit down with Doug Velicki, the CFO, Chief Financial Officer of Revolution Brewing, and discuss the unique approach and success that Revolution Brewing has had in Chicago. And besides talking to Doug, we're going to have a little story today about the lager beer riots in Chicago in 1855. We've also got a report from Tony Rehagen, our freelance journalist and craft beer aficionado, and he's going to talk to us about millennials. And I know some of you are out there listening, and thank you for finding the Bruise Traveler podcast. And here's one, Baby Boomer. I don't resent you guys. I do not at all. I think you're great. I uh, especially like your skinny jeans. Wish I could still wear them. But that was 35 years and 55 pounds ago. Anyway, uh, what else are we going to do here? Oh, going to talk to my good friend, Brooke Scott, lifelong Chicago resident, Northsider, 
friend of mine since our days back at the University of Missouri, and he is in tune with the craft beer scene in the Windy City. So if you haven't done so yet, grab yourself a cold one, sit back, and let's load up that cooler and throw it in the RV and head on up I-55. And now we head on down the road with the Bruce Traveler. Where will the highway take us this week? Where will we lift a pint and who will we meet? Let's find out. Boop-a-doo-doo, come on. Ah, baby, don't you want to go? Come on. I said, baby, don't you want to go back to that same old place? Sweet home, Chicago. The city of big shoulders, the windy city, Chi-Town, the second city. My kind of town, Chicago is my kind of town as long as I don't have to drive there. I do love Chicago. It's my kind of city. I've probably spent more time in Chicago than any other metropolitan area except for Dallas. And that wasn't my fault. I was held hostage there for almost three years by a job. But anyway, when I go to Chicago, it's because I want to go to Chicago. It is my kind of town. The people are great there. So much to do. I have lifelong friends one of whom we're going to talk to in a bit. Matter of fact, he's my best friend, Brooke Scott. I'm godfather to he and Michelle's only son, so that tells you how close our bonds are. And Brooks is an avid craft beer aficionado. He and I have been drinking craft beer together since before any most people knew what craft beer was. And the only thing I love more than talking about beer with Brooks is drinking beer with Brooks, and so we're going to talk to him in a bit. Uh, But first, you know, the history of beer in Chicago is long and it is storied. There's a lot to unpack here. Going back to the founding of the city on the frontier of the Old Northwest back in 1833, the taverns in that city were brewing their own beer, which this was the usual practice in settlements as America was moving west. Of course, these guys were home brewers. That's all they really were. And they had varying success and quality, enough so that ardent spirits like whiskey and moonshine were always more popular on the frontier than beer until the emergence of refrigeration, rail transportation, and the development of at least a rudimentary understanding of microbiotics. Now, that was something that these tavern owners didn't have to work with. And... As long as their beer was semi-palatable and it had some alcohol in it to keep the drinker from contracting dysentery, hey, it's, it's something to drink. Of course, the second most popular beverage on the frontier east of the Mississippi River, especially in the Ohio River Valley, was cider, but that's another story for another time. So after a couple of years of bad beer in Chicago, in 1835, J&W Crawford's Brewing Company opened, bringing the first ales of any kind of quality to what they called at that time the Mud City. A few other competitors emerged through the 1830s and 1840s, but none was ever able to compete with Crawford's until 1842 when an Alsatian immigrant, Michael Diversey, who has a street named after him in the city, he bought this struggling brewery, renamed it the Chicago Brewery, and turned it around. 
Now, you might think that Diversi, being an Alsatian, he was probably brewing lager beer instead of ales, but you'd be mistaken. You see, lagers were just a couple of years yet, and I'll talk about that long, strange trip on our next episode. But anyway, no, Diversi was brewing ales, especially dark ales and porters. And Diversi Chicago Brewery was the dominant brewery in the city until Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over the lantern in 1871 and the Great Chicago Fire. In 1840, the eighth year of the city's existence, the population of Chicago was just over 4,400. However, by 1850, just a decade later, the populace had boomed to nearly 30,000, a growth of over 570%. And the largest influx of people over that period were German and Irish. Germans fled their homelands because of political strife caused by an increased taxation and censorship of political protest and a sense of German nationalism that was rising up against the Austrian and Prussian empires. This eventually culminated in the failed German revolutions of the 1840s. These Germans were of the middle class that fled to America, and they were certain they would be able to live their lives in relatively free environment of governmental interference. Now, that's important to the rest of this story. So they went to where they could buy property, and that was in the West. And a vast majority of them either established businesses or they worked in skilled trades. Now, the Irish are a completely different story altogether. Immigrants from Ireland were largely very rural. They were peasantry, Irish-speaking, that is Gaelic, and Catholic. And most of them were fleeing from what has been mistakenly referred to as the Great Famine. A more correct term would be the potato blight or the term in the Irish language, Angortamor, the Great Hunger. In 1845, when the potato blight began, the population of Ireland was more than 8 million, with 90% of the population as tenant farmers living on English estates and subsisting on potatoes as the staple of their diet. In 1847, the potato crop failure was 100%. By 1851, the population of Ireland was just over 2.5 million, a drop of 5.5 million people. Estimates, and these, these are just estimates, it seems that nobody can agree on the specific numbers in this case, and that's mainly because the records are very shoddy from the time, but conservative estimates are that 1.6 million of those who disappeared from Ireland came to North America, that is, the United States and Canada. Another 2 million immigrated to England looking for work. Another half million went to Australia, which if you do the math, another 1.4 million people either died of starvation, starvation-related diseases, or they're just simply unaccounted for. For the Irish who were lucky enough to take the voyage across the Atlantic, which, by the way, many of them didn't survive, perhaps numbers as high as 50% died, when they arrived in America, for the most part, they had no money, and they began to crowd into what we would call ghettos in the cities along the eastern seaboard, and they took whatever work they might be able to find. Three things were going on in the 1840s which brought the Irish west of the Appalachian Mountains. One, the digging of canals, two, the establishment of a merchant marine commerce over the Great Lakes, and three, the expanding railroads across the United States. 
1848, the Galena-Chicago Union Railroad connected Chicago to the emerging farmlands and agricultural commodities of Illinois and Iowa, causing Chicago to boom as it shipped millions of tons every year of food back towards the U.S. East. So, what work was available to the Irish was almost uniformly unskilled labor, and that was for two reasons. One, most of these immigrants had little skills except for subsistence farming, and number two, because of prejudice and bigotry against Catholics. But there was work in digging canals, putting down railroad tracks, and lugging freight from canal boats onto ships bound for ports on the Great Lakes and back to the east. And this is how the Irish first came to Chicago. Now, despite their differences, the German and Irish immigrants, for the most part, got along very well. First, they both had a mutual animosity toward oppressive governments back across the Atlantic. For the Irish, it was the British. And for the Germans, it was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and to a lesser extent, the Prussian Empire. But both groups were excited about the prospects of their futures in America, and they both liked to drink. Alcohol was the social lubricant of both societies at that time. The United States had gone through a cultural phenomenon in the early 1800s known as the Great Awakening, which emphasized a heightened sense of worship in the Protestant faiths, and along with that came the emergence of the temperance movement, which would eventually, of course, lead to the passage of the Volstead Act and National Prohibition in 1920. But one of the first clashes that took national notice between those who liked to drink, that is the wets, and the teetotalers, the dry, occurred on the streets of the city of Chicago. In 1847, just as the first waves of Irish immigrants were beginning to reach Chicago, the already growing German community had two lager beer breweries open in their neighborhoods. Now, lager beer was an important part of their culture from the old world, and it brought the immigrant families together, especially on Sundays, which were family days, since most members of the community, including older children, worked six days a week. There was no such thing as weekends yet, and the only day most people had to themselves to do what they wanted was Sunday. After church on Sunday morning, they would gather in parks or in beer gardens attached to German alehouses, or in, in Chicago it would be saloons, and they would socialize, eat, and sing, drink, as just as they did in Der Deutschland. And the refugees from Aaron soon joined the merriment. The one thing that the Germans and the Irish have always had in common is we like to have a drink and we love a good party. By 1850, more than half of Chicago's population of 29,000-plus was made up of foreign-born immigrants, the two largest groups being the Irish at 21% and the Germans at 17. The old stock nativist population of Chicago was, for the most part, very fearful of immigrants, especially Catholics, but Lutherans were also looked upon somewhat suspiciously by evangelical Calvinistic Protestant faiths. And the practice of the Germans and Irish of socializing with drink on Sunday was seen by many of these native stock Protestants as disrespectful, if not sinful, and heretical, as well as anathema to their Protestant values. In 1855, the Know Nothing Party, which had been founded primarily on an America for Americans, anti-immigrant, and anti-Catholic platform, 
campaigned and elected Levi Boone, the nephew of the legendary Daniel Boone, to a one-year term as mayor of Chicago. Now, Boone was a racist and a bigot, although in his defense, about 90% of the white population at the time were both. He supported the spread of slavery into the territories. He was anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, and a temperance reformer. So one of his first moves was to ramrod a city ordinance which raised the saloon licensing fee from $50 to $300 per annum. Secondly, he announced publicly that the city was from that point on no longer going to overlook and would begin to enforce the Illinois state statute that prohibited Sunday sale of alcohol and opening of drinking establishments. At the time, there were over 600 drinking establishments in the city, of which only 55 were owned by American-born proprietors. The immigrant community saw Boone's move as an open attack upon their way of life. When the day came that the new ordinance went into effect, the Germans and the Irish unified and in solidarity ignored the law. And then Mayor Boone went into action. Of all of the immigrant saloon owners who hadn't paid the increased licensing fee, 33 of the most prominent were arrested. The prosecution and defense got together and they agreed that rather than hold 33 separate trials, they would try only one, and the decision on that case would apply to all other defendants. Now, on the day of the trial, only a handful of immigrants, including the defendants, came to watch the proceedings. However, the judge of the case was detained by transportation issues from reaching Chicago, so the trial was moved to the next day's docket. This gave the saloon owners time to recruit additional members of the immigrant community to come to the courthouse, and the next morning, more than 600 protesters stood outside the courthouse with guns, clubs, knives, and bricks in their hands, ready to express their anger if the court's decision didn't go their way. Of course, with tempers running high, it was bound to happen. A clash erupted between the protesters and the 200 police constables and deputized citizens. Shots rang out, a policeman was severely wounded, and later would have to have his arm amputated. A protester received a pistol shot to the back, and he died three days later. Most of the fighting was hand-to-hand, -hand, and it went on until the local militia arrived with cannons, which they brought to bear upon the melee and shouted that if the rioters did not disperse, they would open fire into the throng. The leaders of the immigrant groups called for their followers to back down and return to their neighborhoods. One protester was killed, an untold number of injuries, and that ended the Lager Riot of 1855. Eighteen rioters were arrested, 16 Germans and two Irishmen, but only the Irish were brought to trial. The charges against the Germans were dropped over a fear of resumed rioting. The Irish were found guilty, but on appeal to a higher court, the decision was overturned and the charges dismissed. Fearing more riots, the city council rescinded the mayor's pet projects of increased license fees and Sunday liquor law enforcement, and Boone realized his political ambitions were over. He didn't run for another term, and he returned to a life of relative obscurity until 1862 when he was arrested and held by the Union Army under suspicion of helping Confederate soldiers escape from the Camp Douglas POW camp. 
but lack of evidence on this matter led to dismissal of the charges. He died a few years later. The Chicago logger riots for the first time put the growing Midwest city on the map and in the minds of people back east. Newspapers, depending upon their political leanings, painted the event as either an example of the brutish nature of immigrants and another reason to fear them, or, going the other way, as an example of working-class citizens standing up to their personal rights and succeeding in overturning the oppression of an overzealous politician. I suppose the moral of this story is, don't get between a German or an Irishman and their beer. Of course, there's a lot more about the history of beer in Chicago to be told, but I've got other breweries to visit in my kind of town, and I'll need stories to tell you in those episodes as well. So, let's call my buddy Brooks Scott here and find out about some of his favorite craft brewers in Chicago. Hey, Brooks, how's it going? Hey, Alan, how are you? I'm doing great. How are things up in Chicago? Wonderful. What's temperature? It's about, uh, actually cooled off today. We got a cold front that's about 75 out right now. I'm so jealous. It's, it's, it's sweaty and hot here. It's Missouri. You remember Missouri. Brooks and I went oh, to, yes. uh, we went to Mizzou together many, many years ago. Much further back than we would like to admit. Um, <laughs> So, uh, we're on this episode, we're talking about, uh, of course, Revolution Brewing, and we're gonna, I'm going to be coming up, Marilee and I are going to come up and see you and Michelle here in about a month, um, or a little less. Uh, tell us about some of the other craft breweries that are in the city of Chicago, that uh, some of your favorites, and a little bit about them. Sure. Um, it's, uh, well, as you know, Chicago is pretty amazing uh, craft brew scene, so uh, there's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, I can tell you, um, my, some of my personal favorites, um, you know, the top of my list is off color brewing, right. Uh, which was started about five years ago by an ex, uh, Goose Island head brewer named John Laffler, um, with a business partner and, uh, they specialize in what a lot of people like to call funky beers. So it's a lot of, um, one-offs um they do have a couple flagship beers including a great farmhouse ale called apex predator that is a uh, you can almost always find in my fridge uh they just recently opened um their uh their tap room around the corner from uh one of the places that i work at which is great uh, it's called the mouse trap yep uh, and we visited uh, there is, uh, yeah it's it's uh, it's a Fun way to spend an afternoon and try out some some different and interesting beers. They're doing a lot there with uh, at the Mousetrap location with um, uh, with wild fermentation, and um, they've got a number of fooders in there that they're doing oak aging as well, which is really cool. Cool. Half Acre is another great one. Yeah, a, a long-standing player in Chicago. They've got a couple locations. Uh, they're in Lincoln Square, and then a little bit further north, in sort of a no man's land that's kind of in between Andersonville and North Center. Um, uh, and, what, what's uh, their that's actually? What's their flagship? Um, Half Acre's flagship is called Daisy Cutter. That's it, uh, Daisy Cutter. I've drank that. Yeah, it's a Chicago Pale Ale. Right. Um, not you know hoppy, but not like 
crazy hoppy, but uh, they brew, uh, Hefeker almost exclusively brews into 16-ounce uh, um, tall boys, which is nice. They do a couple large format releases out of their, out of their tap rooms as well, and um, are really well known as well for the quality uh, and presentation of the food service in both their locations. Anything else that you want to mention? I know those. Um, are, what are you drinking? <laughs> what are you What are you drinking tonight? Uh, tonight, I'm actually going to go to a place I haven't been to that's actually been uh, been on my list of places. With the volume of craft breweries opening in Chicago, it's hard to keep up. Yeah. Uh, but for Forbidden Root has been around for a few years, and they just opened a tap room and restaurant. Uh, I think it's been a little over a year. And they specialize in botanical beers. So the first beer I had for them, uh, from them a couple years ago, reminded me um, of root beer, but it was beer. Um, so they brew with a lot of, um, hence their name, roots and shrubs and um, all sorts of interesting stuff. So um, I'll have a report on that after I go tonight. Well, great. Well, yeah. we'll just, when we come up there next month, uh, let's if it's if it's a good experience for you, you'll have to uh, take us over there. So, absolutely. Thanks, Brooks. So, absolutely, my pleasure. Yep, an old buddy of mine, good friend for many, many years, and my personal chauffeur when I come to Chicago, Mr. Brooks Scott. Thanks, Brooks. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Al. Take care. So it was Brooks who introduced me to Revolution Brewing Company and their fine selection of brews. I'm not sure how many years ago it was now, but it is a destination anytime we go up to Chicago. We always stop by the Tap Room, which is on North Kedzie Avenue, which is not very far from where Brooks and Michelle live. So speaking of that, uh, let's go up there now. Actually, we're going to go to the Brew Pub and talk to Doug Velicki, the CFO of Revolution Brewing, and that's this episode's interview of the week. Now it's time for the interview of the week, and let's meet our guests. Whether they be a craft brewer or brewing advocate, they're sure to have a story you'll want to hear. And now here's Alan and his guest. Hi, everybody. We're in Chicago, Illinois at Revolution Brewing, one of my favorites here in the Windy City. And we're here with Doug Velicki, and guess what? We have got beer that's 20 minutes old. And Doug, tell us about the Citra Hero here. Cheers, man. Cheers, launch it. So Citra Hero is a beer we've been brewing for quite a few years now, but um, it's coming out right now in a, in a different format. So we, we've recently created this new package that we call the League of Heroes. So. Um, the Hero Series started off with a, a, a partnership we developed with C2E2, which is like Comic-Con, but in Chicago. Uh -huh. And uh, they asked us to brew a beer for them. And uh, what better hop to feature at a, a, a comic book, uh, comic art-focused event than the Galaxy Hop. And then uh, that ended up uh, leading to an entire series of beers that we call the Hero Series. Right. And so that was a rotating seasonal six-pack that we run where Citra Hero was became uh, the most popular, maybe second most popular in the series. And then after a while, um, our consumers were so excited about the ability to compare and contrast unique hop profiles that we wanted to create a way for them to try them all side by side 
that were the same relative amount of freshness. Okay. Because before we'd come out with one, it would be in the market for a few months, then we'd come out with another one. So it was hard to compare and contrast. If you did, they might be a few months apart in age. But this um, new 12 pack we have gives you four different heroes and the ability to get three of each and compare them side by side. And that's what we were over at the uh, the, the major brewery, the, the, brew, the brew house. Right. And we're now here, we're at the brew pub. And uh, that's what you guys were doing today as you were running Citra Hero yep, to be a part of this series. Yep, we were what we call loose packing the Citra Hero. So putting it in cans and then putting it into temporary packaging until we have all four of them canned up. And then we bring them all back out of our cooler and put them into these nice uh, 12-pack cartons. Origins, Revolution Brewing. Um, how did you get involved in this operation? And how long have you been with Revolution? Sure. So I've been with Revolution for just over a year and a half. Um, I've lived in the neighborhood that we sit in right now for Revolution's entire duration. So I was a fan for about six years before I got to be a part of the company. And uh, But before that, I, did, I worked at Revolution's largest distributor, which is uh, a company called Reyes Holdings. That's right. where I spent eight years in finance. And through, as craft beer got bigger and bigger and became more and more a part of the distribution scene, I became very passionate about craft beer in general. And that's how I discovered Revolution when uh, my former employer um, began distributing Revolution quickly became their, their biggest distributor. I'd be remiss if I didn't say, you're the chief financial officer for the company. Correct. All right. Yep. And uh, tell me about how did Revolution get started? Now, I know a little bit about Josh, but our, perhaps our listeners don't. So sure. tell us, what's the backstory on Revolution? Sure. So, so Josh is originally from Massachusetts, but went to school in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan. And while he was studying there, he got the homebrewing bug, like a lot of people were at that time, and uh, just got hooked on craft beer. He was also, as a side note, um, a big part of uh, affordable housing co-op and was very into the nonprofit scene. And uh, he, through those two passions, he got into home brewing and decided to take it to the next level and applied for a job at a, a brewery that no longer exists, but was called Golden Prairie. And so Josh, as a young 20-something, young got his first job uh, cleaning kegs, cleaning tanks, just doing anything he could. And uh, that eventually led to the opportunity to uh, be a part of the seller team at Goose Island uh, shortly after. So um, Josh worked at Goose Island for a while and then eventually got promoted to be their brew pub's um, head brewer. Was that in Lincoln Park? Yes, Yeah. Okay. exactly. So um, while being Goose Island's head brewer, that's where Josh dreamed up the idea of revolution brewing and decided as much as he loved uh, doing what he did there, he had this vision for Revolution Brewing that he wanted to start. And uh, his first few attempts were not successful in terms of um, gaining enough investment support to put it all together. It didn't work out his first, his first time, so he did the next best thing that he could afford to do, which was open up a um, beer bar and, uh, with, a, with a restaurant. So he opened one that's called The Handlebar and is still, um, it's down on North Avenue just a few miles from here and is still um, a great place to check out. That was where Josh started. The, but uh, the dream of revolution never really, never really died. And uh, in the end of the, toward the end of the last decade, he um, tried to give it another go and was successful this time. And um, by around 2008 is when he had all the investors in place. 
and had found this building that we're sitting in right now, which at the time, Logan Square wasn't what it is today. There wasn't as many bars and restaurants and shops around here. He was kind of the one of the first, uh, if not the first, uh, liquor license on this whole block here that's now a bustling strip. Brooks and, was telling me Logan Square has just blown up in right. the last 10 years. Absolutely, yeah. and uh, Revolution was a big part of that. You know, it, like I said, it was the one of the first places to grab drinks in this area. It, and it, that was uh, at the very beginning of 2010 when we opened. It was and, at the start of the revolution. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so it took a couple years to get this place customized and ready to go. And it was uh, early 2010 when it opened. And it opened as a brew pub with a 15-barrel system that we still use today for some of our smaller batch beers. Um, and then within about a year, we uh, started on the next step, which is the room we're sitting in now, just above our brew pub, which is our special event space where we can host weddings. We do uh, over 100 weddings a year up here and allow um, nonprofits to come in and do um, fundraising events during the week. And it's turned into a great space where we can host you know, unique one-off beer-centric events up here. There's a great stage. We've had podcast recordings, just like we're doing now. Right. Um, we've had other events up here, and it just gives us a, a, a great extra spot um, to do unique, you know, ways it's, to it's engage ways a, to engage our consumers. It's a beautiful space. I always like to find out where did the name of a brewery come from. You know, it's like uh, these stories kind of fascinate me because it's it's one of the creative aspects of craft brewing is coming up with. A name and a concept. So, could you tell us about that? Well, I I would say that the, the reason I love our name so well is because I feel like it encompasses the entire industry, the entire craft beer industry. What the name Revolution is is what's happening here. And, and Josh, our owner, had this this vision of using his you know passion for beer and making you know uh, diverse styles and balanced, drinkable, ex more exciting beers. He, he was able to use that um, and combine his passions with um, you know, helping the community as a way to put this all together. So I like to say he's, um, you know, our, our goals include not only revolutionizing uh, the way beer can be, can be made, but also what a brewery can do for the community around it. And that's, that's another thing that I find with, with you know, most of the craft breweries is they're very involved in the community. They're, they're, they're involved in the philanthropic endeavors mm -hmm. around the community, which that doesn't mean that the big guys aren't. Mm -hmm. They are, to accept, but it's more localized with, with the craft breweries. It's more like a neighborhood feel, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Definitely. And they're also um, you know, help, helping pave the way for you know, potential changes in the laws that can help other craft breweries exactly. that are going to start up in the future and helping to, you know, make, make create um, new opportunities for, for the next wave of craft breweries. That's another thing. It's like most craft breweries, uh, they're very generous with helping others. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's like the, the old-fashioned guilds. Everybody pulled together to yep. help out. Um, so, how big is Revolution? Uh, how many brew lines has between the two facilities do you have? So we have um, we have three brew houses. We have a 15 barrel system okay. here, and then a 15 or 50 
and a our um, 120 barrel system at the at the other location okay. at our production brewery. Um, when you say brew lines, are you, are you talking about draft lines? No, 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 or? no, no. How, yeah, how many how many beers are you capable of brewing at any one time? Okay, um, I'd say you know our actual capacity. We we produced and sold 82,500 barrels last year. The year before that, we brewed uh, just over 72,000. So we've been growing for the last few years at you know approximately give or take about 10,000 barrels more per year. Um, some of that is organic growth here in Chicago. It's also from expanding to other markets in the Midwest and the East Coast. That has um, helped with our growth. And then uh, we have the capacity to brew um, not a whole lot more more beer without some more um, tanks, which um, is a potential expansion down the road. But um, I'd say we have the capability to um, produce somewhere between 110 and 130,000 um, beers realistically with our space right now. It all depends on, uh, you know, what you're brewing, how long, you right. know, is it lagers or IPAs? Are you making these mixed packs right. like with the League of Heroes that can eat up your capacity a little bit? So it all depends on what you're brewing. That's why it's kind of a range, I would say. How many states are you distri uh, distributing in now? We're in eight states. Okay. So we're in, uh, aside from Illinois, our home state, where we sell a lot of our beer, um, we're in Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, so that's the Midwest, and then on the East Coast, we're in New Jersey, New York City, and Massachusetts. So, Doug, let's talk about your portfolio. Sure. I mean, how many beer, how many different beers do you produce annually, and are there any kind of styles that you specialize in? Um, you know, we, we do pride ourselves on having a diverse pro, um, uh, portfolio. But I, I would say we, we're most known for our IPAs, mm -hmm. but uh, also I'd say our seasonal program. So if I run you through our portfolio, we have Antihero, our 6.7% uh, IPA. It's um, just one of those, we, we, I'd refer to it as a Midwest, I wouldn't call it a West Coast IPA, and it's certainly not a uh, East Coast IPA. It's somewhere you know in between, very balanced, crisp, nice floral citrus mix as well. Um, Antihero is probably about you know 45 percent of our sales. That's our our, our lead uh, beer for sure. And then we also have uh, Eugene Porter and Bottom Up Wit are two of our other year-round beers. Then um, here in Chicago, we have a line of three additional beers that are Fist City, which is our pale ale, Rev Pills, our German-style pilsner, and then Cross of Gold, which is a golden ale. Um, so those three are only available here in Chicago, and those are, tend to be our most low AVB, easy drinking beers. Then we have our seasonal line. Um, we, there are currently five going on six beers in our seasonal line, and these are interesting because I feel like with our fans, our fans tend to have one or two of these that they gravitate towards, but not necessarily, we don't have that. I don't think we have that customer that goes from our Oktoberfest beer to our Christmas uh, holiday ale to our A Little Crazy is our Belgian um, pale ale that we release in the wintertime, then we go to Sun Crusher. I feel like we have our uh, uh, a lot of fans who tend to drink one of our core year-round beers and then just have a favorite seasonal when that seasonal comes, right. comes about, and then they drink that beer all season long, but then maybe switch back to... Beer. And they cry when the cake runs out. Yeah. 
That's pretty much how it works. And then we have um, our Hero Series that I talked about a little bit at the beginning, but that um, works like a seasonal, but it's a rotating IPA series that um, has really uh, exciting graphics that kind of uh, capture our love of comic books and our appreciation for this uh, uh, convention, the C2E2, that we uh, sponsor every year. And, uh, what time of year is that? It's in early April, so you just missed it. So, yeah, but there's it's a really good year time. coming around, right? <laughs> so. So, so, yeah, we have this rotating six-pack of uh, specialty IPAs that tend to focus on a single hop or a hop um, profile. Uh-huh. And then we have the League of Heroes pack, which is, uh, you know, taking uh, four favorites, uh, four of our favorite heroes, and putting them all in a pack with relatively the same freshness date given consumers more of an experience around IPA and hop exploration right. and I love those I love this package because there's an educational element to it as well you know it lets you learn you know in this one what is the centennial hop and how is that different right. from the citra hop and I can taste two beers that were canned on the same day or within a day or two of each other pour pour them with a friend and try half of each and really really get an idea of what a similar beer but with different hops That's tastes like probably what we're going to do tonight Uh, so since you've joined revolution Mm -hmm. what have you discovered in the industry that really surprised you now i know you had a background in distributorship prior to that but sure um i could go on for a while one one of the things that came up recently that i think about a lot and i still catch myself with is just how important distribution is and and I mean the beer being available you know I think of like how important it is for um, on social media side for the for breweries to um, create the demand from the customers and that is extremely important but you can't have that until the beer is available and the people are going to be able to find it and be able to access it on the store shelves if nobody can find your beer nobody's going to buy your beer. Right. So just how important the distribution is first um, before you create the demand from the customers. Because right. a lot of folks are just going to find your make their decision by looking on the shelf and look through the labels and see what pops out at them or what catches their eye. But uh, like I said, if that beer is not getting seen, no, there's, nobody's going to buy it. Yeah, the partnership with distribution. And I would also say, from my background, uh, the partnership between the brewery and the, the on-premise accounts. Absolutely. What surprises me from my old job is that once people discover a new brew and they like it, then they seek it out. Absolutely. You know, I mean, they do. They seek it out. And craft beer drinkers, I think, are passionate about the brands that they drink. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think we're we're starting to work our way out of the, um, you know, consumers who must try a different beer every time they go to the store right. and are buying something different, right. even if they know nothing about right. the quality or haven't received any recommendations, rather than something they know is a winner, uh, always feeling the pressure to try something new. I feel like that. Well, there's still some of that out there for sure, and probably always will be with so many breweries. I think there's a, a little more uh, loyalty coming around where people are a little exhausted from trying a new beer and and, and don't feel 
the need to try a new one every time that right. they, they are looking for a little more reliability and consistency. So that's a shift I've, I've, I've noticed. I, 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 I agree. Right I, I have found yeah. that too. And, I mean, and, uh, and that's not to say that consumers only have one favorite brewery right. and that's all right. they buy. But I think they more have their, call it four or five favorites and tend to stick to that. Doug, what challenges do you see coming down the line for the industry? Um, I think one challenge is definitely going to be pricing of beer and the price pressure that uh, some of the uh, large macro breweries um, or, or w that we'll see from them, from the craft breweries they've acquired, and also from just some of the larger um, craft or uh, formerly craft breweries with uh, how much pressure they're going to put on uh, the price of beer and then um, some of the smaller breweries who just can't keep up with that. Can't, can't um, keep lowering the prices. Right. Yeah, right. And not that they should, no. but that will, uh, you know, kind of potentially segment customers a little bit from, from some who are, you know, just going to buy the cheapest one they can find to those who do, you know, um, spend up and right. trade up and, and do want to, uh, are willing to pay a little bit more for something local, um, which is often is the can be a fresher beer as well, and, local uh, and artisan. And, yeah. yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. What's coming down the road for Revolution? What can fans of Revolution Brewing expect? So in mid June, we're really excited to um, bring to market our first ever canned sour. So it is a beer that um, started in the brew pub here where our brew pub brewmaster created it, created the name, the recipe, and he named it Freedom of Speech, with speech spelled like the, the fruit peach. And it is a low ABV, easy drinking, um, tart but not sour, not overly sour, um, uh, peach ale. And uh, we've now brewed it three times here and just thought this, this beer is a winner. It's got the perfect name that fits in with Revolution, Revolution, freedom of speech sure. is what we're all about here. Right. And uh, so we're gonna, we decided to scale that one up and we're gonna um, begin, we've already done some test batches at our production brewery and um, that's underway now and it'll go into cans in mid-June and uh, start heading the market shortly after. So um, that's a new style for us to be making accessible. It's gonna be a very affordable six pack of a fruit sour that I think people are going to get really excited about. And But you've three seasons you've done it here at the Brew Pub and now you're going to be canning it? Is yeah, that it's, right? it's just been a draft only beer that you could right. have if you're... Is it eating. available today? Uh, it, it is available at our other location. I'd have to check if it is here. No worries. I'm sure you've got a beer down there that I like. <laughs> I'm not worried about that. So, we like to end these interviews with the lightning round five questions. All right. There's no wrong or right answers. It's famous revolutionaries, and here we go. Che Guevara or Thomas Paine? Ooh, Thomas Paine. Okay. George Washington or Thomas Jefferson? George Washington. Okay. Karl Marx or Frederick Engels? Karl Marx. All right. Mahatma Gandhi or Eugene Debs? I have to go Eugene Debs. Of course, yes. And in, from the world of craft beer, Jim Cook of Boston Beer Company or Fritz Maytag of Ankerstein? I'm going to go with, this is a tough one. It is a tough one. 
I'm going to go with Jim Cook. Okay. You can't go wrong with either yeah. one of those guys <laughs> because if there's if there's two fellows that have had more impact on the craft beer revolution yeah. in the United States, I don't yeah. know who you've they got are. The, you've got the originator, and then you've got the guy who pushed right. the boundaries right. probably the most. So, Doug, thanks so much. Appreciate it. it. And, you know, taking time out of your busy day, the CFO, folks, the CFO <laughs> of, of Revolution Brewing took time to talk with us. Uh, and thanks for coming on the Bruce Travel. No problem. I appreciate these uh, passion projects, and I want to do everything. We want to do everything we can to support them, so we appreciate you coming all this way. Cheers. Cheers. want to thank Doug and uh, everyone over at Revolution Brewing for giving us a tour and the interview. We got to see the brewery, which is the largest in the state of Illinois, and it's quite a, it's quite a spectacular uh, piece of work. I'll be putting some photographs up on the Facebook page. Uh, so you can take a look at uh, it. It's a nice place. They've got a lot going on there. And not only they've got a lot going on at the brewery, they're doing a lot of good in the community. Uh, Revolution has made an effort to get involved with the groups in the community that are arts and culture, civil rights, environment, and organizations that are working for a positive change in the city of Chicago. The Brew Pub is located at 2323 North Milwaukee Avenue in Chicago. Their hours are Monday through Friday, 11 to 1, Saturday, 10 to 1, Sunday, 10 to 11, and brunch on Saturday and Sunday is served from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. The Brewery and the Tap Room, located at 3340 North Kedzie Avenue. It's open on Wednesday through Thursday, 2 p.m. to 10, Friday, 2 p.m. to 11, Saturday noon to 11, and Sunday noon to 6. If you would like to learn more about Revolution Brewing, check out their website at revbrew.com. Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing? And we've got Tony Rehagen, our buddy, a freelance journalist on the line. What's going on, Tony? Not much, not much. Uh, just kind of chilling out at the home front, uh, sipping on a, a perennial from local St. Louis and just uh, kind of enjoying being home for a bit. Yeah, we got to get over to Perennial Brewing. I, I, I really sure. I want to check those guys out. I'm hearing a lot of good things about them. Hey, uh, what do you got for us this week? Oh, the damn millennials, Alan. The damn millennials. <laughs> what about these millennials? Well, first, I, I want to make a disclaimer that I, I was totally kidding about damn millennials. I'm, I'm kind of on the borderline myself, depending on who you ask, even though I definitely have the old soul of a of a uh, Gen Xer. But I, you know, I personally feel like they get a bad rap. You know, the, the rules <laughs> kind of changed on them in the middle of the game, and, and but that's a whole other story. Better save for a night of you know a night of beers at the pub. Yeah, I, I'm I, old enough. I'm old enough now. I'm old enough now to remember when the when the when the folks were cussing the baby boomers. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> of That's which I am. All right. So so we're, we're talking. Here's a baby boomer and a Gen Xer talking about millennials. What do we got here? Yeah. Well, it's, what's interesting about them is that they really. I mean, they go if they go to the pub, they're not drinking beer. Um, and I saw this in a recent Forbes article that says overall millennials drink less alcohol than previous generations. Now, some people knew that. Um, and that must be why they're so damn skinny. But, uh, <laughs> but when they do drink, they prefer wine, uh, which is kind of crazy. But a, a business insider recently said that millennials drink 42% of all 
vino consumed in the U.S. Really? Like nearly 100, 160 cases a year. Yeah, it's insane. I, I, so they, I, they, like, they like the wine. I would, I would have thought it would have been women my age. <laughs> right, well, the, it, you know, it, it, the, and the reason, the reason for it is, is because, you know, and you see it now, they're not only there are plenty of affordable, good wines these days, but they come, you don't, you no longer have to buy the big bottle. You can buy cans, you can buy a box, a pouch. Uh, they, they sell those single serving bottles. They make it real easy. If you just want to go on a float trip and grab, you know, right. grab my wine before yeah, well, plastic like, bottles. Like Boda Box. I mean, when we yep. go, when we go, when we go canoeing or camping somewhere where we can't have glass or aluminum, we take a Boda Box. And th- yeah. Th- it's just too easy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, and wine is generally considered healthier, although, I mean, you see studies that come out every other day that they'll tell you one thing's going to kill you. We're going to die. I mean, you might as well go out happy, I guess. But, uh, but you know, and there's, there, is a few, there are fewer calories in wine uh, for, for the buzz, for sure. Right. But one thing that, that as, long as, as long as they're drinking, I'm fine with that, and it's no big deal that, that you know, it's more into the pool. But what's another interesting trend that might be more concerning to beer makers is that this Forbes article I was talking about also talks about the generation after the millennials, those 21 to 25-year-olds that are steering clear of alcohol altogether. In favor of the new the new kid on the block, which is not new at all, but is new newly legal in some states, and that's cannabis. Well, yeah, and what, yeah. What, where it's not legal, I mean, the penalties on it are so in most cases are so low. As long as you're not distri- doing distribution, you're pretty much a slap on the wrist. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and as more states move, or in Missouri or Georgia or Indiana's case, crawl towards legalizing marijuana, uh, there's evidence that younger adults would shift to weed if given the opportunity. Um, uh, Monocle, a marketing firm, recently surveyed folks in California, which uh, legalized in 2016 for recreational and medicinal. And 51% of those of Californians said that they plan to replace alcohol with cannabis. And a third of them said the beer would be the first drink they had to pour out, um, which I, I shed a tear for all that. And I kind of just want to drive a truck out there and just take it off their hands for them. Um, but uh, the other, in addition to that, Cohen and Company, which is an investment firm, recently told its investors to watch out in investing in breweries, which will be under increasing pressure from the from the uh, the tokers in the next decade. Um, which uh, you know, I mean, who know who knows? But that's that that's got to give you a little bit of pause. Well, I I mean, it's I think it's uh, we're just at one of those places where, you know, for for years for young people, the cheap thing to go after for your buzz you know, was, uh, mm-hmm. was beer. And, yeah, and now uh, the younger people have so many different choices, not just alcohol, but as you say, uh, cannabis. And, I, and, and all, all the studies come to show is that, you know, um, cannabis has, well, the, it still has uh, harmful effects if you smoke it, but uh, mm-hmm. if it's ingested, to say, through, uh, through uh, oils or uh, edibles, it has fewer mm-hmm. health consequences than alcohol, uh, but you know, um, I've always said, you know, is life worth living? Eh, it depends on your liver. So there you go. That's for sure. No, you got to enjoy the ride while you go. And well, yeah, really that, that, that's what Anthony Bord. That's what Anthony Bourdain said. You know, your body's that's not true. a temple; it's an amusement park. Enjoy the ride. So. That's right. No, yeah, I don't, I don't want to leave a pristine Ferrari in the garage. I want to, I want to run the wheels off. Exactly. <laughs> but, yeah. but the weird thing is, why can't we have both? And what's it, uh, one interesting thing, I was recently in Colorado, 
Um, and they do, they, they are starting to come out with, uh, weed infused THC beer, quote unquote. Yep. Uh, but that'll be, that'll be a story for another time. Yeah. I read, I read a quick thing on Twitter about that not too long ago. Yeah. That'll be, I look forward to what you can dig up on that. Well, okay. Tony, <clears throat> I'm gonna let you go. I've got Sounds to, good. uh, um, uh, like I said, uh, we're heading up to Minnesota and, uh, uh, I've got packing to do, so. Anyway, buddy, I'll I'll tell you a list, a grocery list. Okay, all right, (laughs) I'll uh, and uh, I'll give you a report on uh, what I find up there. Tony Rehagen, everybody, thanks a lot, Tony, freelance journalist. We appreciate you helping us out here. Thank you. All right, my my pleasure. You've been listening to The Brews Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or check out our blog on website, thebrewstraveler.com. Cheers. And cheers to you, Jessica. And cheers to everybody out there. Thanks for listening again. And uh, please tell your friends about us. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Brews Traveler Podcast. And on Twitter at The Brews LR. You can find all of our links on the website. That's thebrewstraveler.com. On behalf of everyone here at The Bruce Traveler, thanks for listening. And if you really want to show us some love, give us a great five-star hug and review over on iTunes. It would be greatly appreciated. The soundtrack for The Bruce Traveler is from our friends at Gaelic Storm. A big thanks to them for supporting the podcast. Their new album, Go Find a Tree is available at their website, GaelicStorm.com. And while you're there, check out their tour schedule and see if they might be coming to a town near you. You can also find their music on iTunes and probably any place else where you can get your music. Hey, we're on the road next week. Myself and the Bruges Traveler team videographer, Tom Baker, will be in Duluth, Minnesota this weekend at Canal Park Brewing on Saturday night, June 23rd, and at Bit Paddle Brewing on Sunday afternoon, June 24th. We'll also head it up to Grand Marais for a couple of days. And then on the way back south, we're going to hit Surly Brewing in Minneapolis. If you're going to be in the area and you would like to meet up with us, just drop us a message over on Facebook and we'll let you know about what time we think we'll be around. So until next time, remember, folks, drink locally, think globally, take care of each other, and take care of the earth because it's everything that we've got. So I'm on down the road, and if I don't run into you at your favorite tap room, I'll see you right back here on the podcast. And as always, Merrily, you are the measure of my dreams. All right, see you guys. So long for just a while.
Time is the coin of your life. You spend it. Do not allow others to spend it for you. Carl Sandburg, born January 6, 1878, Galesburg, Illinois, died July 22, 1967, Flat Rock, North Carolina.